Paul says, he's kind of picking up again mid-argument. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, by his performance, then he had something to brag about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages or a paycheck aren't credited as a gift, but it's an obligation. It's what your boss owes you. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, Their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when when he speaks about the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered up. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Therefore, we're skipping ahead to verse 16 now. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not just to those who are of the law or just the religious people, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, i.e. anybody on planet earth. He is father of us all. As it is written, Abraham, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. This promise was that through Abraham's child, that God would save the world. So that's why he's talking about his body being 100 years old, his wife's womb being dead. Um, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what God promised to do. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And the words, it was credited to him, hear this, weren't written for him alone, but also for us, the room tonight, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised up to life for whose justification? For ours. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray that he would use it as he promises to before we hear Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we know tonight we don't need more illustrations or just more truisms or more little quotes that we can write down in our books and try to remember later on. What we need is you. Because you are the resurrected one. You are the one who laid down your life that we might take up our life. You are the one who touches dead people and dead things and new life returns. And so we pray that tonight would be a piece of the story. Would tonight be another time when you come and you resurrect? When you come to dead people in dead places in our lives, stubborn places, would you come and show us how powerful you are? Would you come and plant faith and grow faith, we pray? We pray that you do this all to the glory of your name. Amen.
So did you know that uh, July is the most dangerous month to be in a hospital in the U.S.? More medical malpractice lawsuits arise in July. More mistakes happen in July. More deaths in hospitals happen in July. Far more than any of the other 11 months. The reason why July is the most dangerous month to be in the hospital is because July is the month when just huge troves of medical students graduate. And they get their nice little starched, clean, white lab coats, and they get their new title doctor after four years of med school. And uh, they land at the doorstep of hospitals all over the country for something called a residency. Now, a residency is like a four-year apprenticeship where you kind of uh, it's a little bit like shadowing more senior doctors, but it's also like you are a doctor. You have the title, and so when sick people come into the ER, you're the person who helps them. And that's what a residency is. And so July is the month where everybody who graduates medical school just drops out of the sky on the doorstep of these hospitals where they're going to spend four years doing a lot of damage. <laughs> uh, and so I read the story of one of these residents describing his first day uh, as a resident in the ER at this new hospital he went to. Uh, he's walking down the hall. It's been a pretty quiet day so far. And this nurse busts out of one of the patient rooms. And she is white as a ghost. And she says, I need a doctor. This patient is crashing. Like they're flatlining. And his first instinct, he said, was to look around and find a doctor. And he was about to go help her try to track down a doctor. And then he realized she was still staring at him. And he felt his white lab coat. And he's like, oh, shit. I am the doctor. And so he, uh, very uh, sobered at this point, walked into this room, and the heart monitor is like screaming the flatline beep. Beep. And he said he froze. He's standing at the foot of this patient's bed. They are dead or dying, flatlined, and he's frozen. And the nurse saw that this little green thumb doctor was frozen, and so she brings over the defibrillator. She, like, greases the thing up and puts the paddle in his hands as if to say, hey, this is what we do when people have heart attacks. And uh, this guy says um, his training kicked in. Medical school kicked in at this point. And he puts the paddles on the patient, and he says, clear. And the nurse says, no, 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 don't do that. You're going to kill him. And he says, what do you mean? And she says, you're about to shock his liver. He had, he had put the paddles on the patient's stomach right here. And however many volts that is was about to go directly into his kidneys and his liver, which would have killed him like that. And so the nurse took the paddles back from this doctor and like, took his hands like she's teaching him how to swing a tennis racket. And they put them on the guy's chest, where his heart actually is, and they shock him. Now the patient survived and uh, was resuscitated. And this doctor said... This is the most sobering day of his life, and he said he didn't sleep for two days. He said for the rest of his shift that day and when he got off shift for the next uh, couple of days, he, all he did was watch videos online of how to stitch up patients, and he would go talk to nurses in the ER about how to do different really basic procedures, um, and, he would, uh, and he would go back over his medical school notes. Uh, and he said the irony was, was when that patient was dying, he could have given you a three-hour lecture about what was happening in the patient's brain, what was going on chemically in their body, what was happening with the heart valves. He knew all of that. Four years of knowing anatomy inside and out, 
physiology, pharmacology, medicine, everything. He had it all at, a, at this prestigious medical school. But here's the problem. In the moment of need, in the moment of crisis, he had none of that available to him to apply to the situation. And so this guy whose head is literally filled with so much information about what's happening is frozen, and he has no idea what to do with all these terms that he knows and all these graphs that he's seen. Now, why this illustration after we just read this passage? Here's why. I would wager money. I think it's a safe bet. I would win. I would make money on this. If I said most of the people in the room, you have spent a lot of time in the church. You probably, most of you grew up in the church. You didn't know a time where you weren't um, around Christians or a Christian yourself. Um, some of you, it's been more recent. It's been the past couple of years or maybe the past few months. But we are people, largely, who have spent a lot of time in the classroom. Um, I bet there's a lot of you, I would bet money on this too, that you could give a great hour-long seminar on what repentance is, on what the definition of faith is on what it means that Jesus saves by grace and not by works. You could do all of that. Um, in a sense, we walk around with our, our clean, starched, little spiritual lab coats. We're ready to go. But when the crises come, when there's flat lines in your life or your friend groups uh, or your future or your relationship, we're like the doctor, frozen. All this information and no idea how to deploy it to that situation. And we freak out. Uh, and what it does is it makes all the information we know seem impotent and useless, just like for that doctor. Medical school seemed utterly irrelevant in that moment when this nurse saved this person's life, and he's standing there with nothing to do. Uh, and so I, I think there's a parallel there. Spiritually speaking, this is talking to all of us, not the spiritual people in the room, all of us. We're like the doctor. We get to these different places in our life and we're frozen. We don't know what to do. Or we feel like we're all thumbs, which is a saying for being like we're clumsy. What does it mean? Like, what does it mean to live by faith uh, with the next big future decision you have? Some of you are, December is coming at you like a freight train. And this is really practical for you. What do I do? Which job offer? Which interview do I go? What town am I willing to move to? For some of you, it's a relationship question right now. What do I do with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? We're at a fork in the road. What do we do? Some of you, it's spiritual. Uh, I'm a repeat offender in this area or these areas, and every single day, I'm back at the same place. And you feel like all thumbed. You feel frozen in the crisis, and all the stuff you know doesn't seem to apply to that moment. And so I pointed this out earlier, but Paul is gathered around the bedside table, the bedside of this patient, and he says, hey, come here. Watch me do this. Watch faith at work in Abraham's life. Let's make some observations. Uh, and then when you are in these crisis moments, like that nurse showed the doctor, you will be better equipped. You will know how to deploy, how to use, how to apply, how to live out what seems abstract. And so he's calling us around the bedside and saying, here's what faith looks like. Here's where it comes from. Here's what it does. Here's how it grows. Here's how yours can thrive, okay? So are you ready to lean over with Paul as he kind of whispers some things to us about what this looks like? So uh, follow me. We're going to look at a few different 
observations about what true, genuine, bona fide faith looks like, what it feels like, how it works. Uh, And then we're going to kind of see how this um, hits us in the places we're struggling with and dealing with right now. And so if you're a note taker, you'll be happy tonight because there's three things you get to write down in your journal. The first is this, faith sees obstacles. Uh, The second thing we're going to talk about faith is that faith rests in an object. Uh, And the final thing we're going to talk about is faith produces an outcome. So faith uh, sees obstacles, faith rests in an object or a person, and faith produces something. Fruit comes from it, uh, if it's alive, if it's real. Okay, so the first thing is this, that Paul is kind of using Abraham and the promise made to Abraham as a case study Uh, not just for what faith is like, but also how God actually works to rescue us. And so here's one of the first things uh, that he says. Faith sees obstacles. If you look at this passage, uh, and you know the context, that God was promising to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I am going to renew the whole human race. Through your offspring, great, 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 great grandchild named Jesus and all of his people. I am going to make everything new through you. Now, the problem is, at the moment, Abraham is in the nursing home. And at the moment, his wife is older than him, and she's like rolling down the hall with her little walker or her little rascal. And he's like, problem. Uh, My body's as good as dead. Problem number two, my wife's womb is dead. And so... uh, Abraham's response originally to this promise of God, God, this is a really big promise too, right? Like I'm going to renew and renovate everything in the universe, big promise. Seems like, God, hey, wait a second. I'm old and so is my wife. Hundred-year-old ladies don't have babies. Um, And he draws attention to how dead everything is. But so Abraham's faith sees the obstacle. And in general, faith sees obstacles. It sees walls in between you and what God has promised you. It's alert to the, it it acknowledges that there are seemingly insurmountable obstacles in between you and what you need and seemingly towering walls in between you and what God has promised you, for instance. God promises to his people that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble doesn't say he kind of gets there a little bit on the scene. He says, in the moment of trouble, I am an ever-present help. I am your rock. I am your fortress. I am your refuge. But we, in the moment, see insurmountable walls between us and his presence. Maybe you know that promise in your head like the medical school knowledge. But in the moment, his presence is the last thing you feel. His absence is what you're aware of. It's what your emotions are telling you. God's far away. His promises don't feel true right now. So faith sees those obstacles. Another example. God says he will pull you into the image of Jesus. Fancy talk for when you see Jesus one day, Christian, you are going to look like him. You are going to be like him. Clean, good, righteous, regret-free, shame-free, powerful, beautiful holy, fully righteous. You hear that now and you're like, but Ben, there's these walls in between that promise and my stubbornness, my foolishness, 
my track record, what I did this week, what I've done last week. So the, the point is this. Faith, the critique of Christianity is popular amongst folks who are not terribly aware of what Christianity is like, is this. They say Christianity or faith in general is naive. It's for weak people who can't kind of take the rough edges of life. And so faith is kind of the tool you use to sweep hard stuff under the carpet. It's what you do to avoid difficulty or complexity or confusion. Uh, And so they say that faith is naive. But look at this, verse 19 through 21. Abraham isn't sweeping under the rug massive obstacles that seem to stand in the way of what God is saying he's going to do and where Abraham is currently doing life. Abraham's doing life in the nursing home, and God's saying, you're going to be a daddy. Time to pick up your bags and move to the maternity ward. So he says, without weakening in faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Ironically, he was actually strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God was able to do what God promises to do. So uh, here's the thing. Faith sees obstacles. Faith also sees around obstacles. Or you could say this. Maybe here's a better way to put this. Your eyes will always see obstacles. Only your faith can ever see God. Okay? Here's 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 why this is important. If you are trusting on your eyes or your brain or your logic or your reason to to give you all the information, all the evidence, all the data, all the signs that you need to live your life or to, to live with God, you are missing out a tremendous amount of information. Because your eyes only pick up a little narrow bandwidth of what's actually going on in reality. Could her OBGYN have predicted that? Could the biology professor in town kind of counsel them and said, you know, this is, this is possible. We've seen cases of this before. This is biologically possible. His eyes wouldn't have predicted it. The OBGYN's eyes wouldn't have predicted it. Probably anybody else in town's eyes didn't have the data to be strengthened in faith and to see over or around that obstacle. Uh, and and the, I have spent years... Months and months and months of my life paralyzed at forks in the road. Big decisions like, what am I going to major in? Because I, I wasn't like drawn to one particular major over the other. And then a few years later, it was, what am I going to do after school? Because I graduated and unfortunately didn't have a huge desire to do one thing or the other. And I freaked out because all my other friends did know what they wanted to do. Uh, and then later, it's like, I'd never dated anybody before, Anna. And so that was a mind bender for me. Like, do I start dating? like I'm in seminary. We live across the country from each other. Uh, and then it was uh, nothing wrong with Anna. You're going to hear more of my story and know this is a faith issue with me. This is a me having a small God. But then I'm stuck with, should we get married? Because I'm all confused by all this, the one stuff. Here's why I was paralyzed at those forks in the road. I wanted God. I wanted him to let me live by sight. I wanted a sign. I wanted evidence. I wanted to know. I wanted certainty. Because I said in my mind, I am only safe if I can see safety. If I know this is going to work out. 
if I have a sign or a word from God or a voice from God, and my suspicion is all of you are very familiar with being stuck at forks in the road in your life, waiting on God to appeal to your eyes. When God isn't terribly interested in that all the time, here's the reason why. You can get all the data to your eyes. You can have all of the reasoned arguments of why you should do this or that. What you don't get, what your eyes can't give you, is the person of God himself. That comes through faith. Because it is faith that is your access point, the touch point between you and this God. And if you're only relying on your eyes or your ability to figure things out, you are missing a tremendous amount of vital information. If Abraham had lived by sight, Abraham would have rejected the promise. Abraham would have laughed and said, you're nuts. This is a little messier story, um, if you know the full story from the Old Testament. Abraham did waver a little bit. Uh, Paul's statement here is absolutely true. Paul's proving the bigger point that eventually Abraham came around and God gave Abraham faith to live by that faith. But do you remember what Abraham did to try to make the promise come true? He's like, well, my wife's infertile, so maybe I'll sleep with my maid. And that little baby, like maybe that's what God meant when he said through my seed. So come here, maid. Nine months later, oh, here's the promised one. And Abraham threw his wife under the bus, repeatedly lying about her. So Abraham's a, Abraham's a salty character. How kind and merciful and good and gracious of God to remember Abraham as a righteous man who believed. How patient of God to wade through all that mess with Abraham as he came around and learned to believe that his eyes don't tell him everything he needs to know. Faith is not just aware of obstacles. It's particularly aware of deadness. You see how Paul's kind of going way out of his way to draw attention to all the death here? He says, Abraham, whose body, parentheses, whose body was as good as dead, parentheses, he was 100 years old, and his wife's womb, parentheses, which was dead. Faith is particularly aware of, if you're a Christian, your faith can be, should be particularly aware of death around you and in you. Death in your relationships, death on your campus, death in your house, death in your family dynamics, death in the world. You don't have to ignore that. You don't have to sugarcoat it. You don't have to edit it out of your life as if it's a threat to all of God's promises to you. You can look at it in the eye like Abraham looked at it in the eye because there was more to the story than the death he saw. Does your Bible study feel like it's dying? Are you relying on your eyes to give you all the data? Or do you see the God of resurrection who characteristically, by reputation, loves to come to dead places to bring life there? Your relationship with your mom, your dad, feel dead and you've attempted to throw in the towel, be done with it, nothing's coming out of this. Have you taken into account the God of resurrection? Or are you just making assessments based on your eyes? The second thing we said earlier, so faith sees obstacles. Faith also clings to, rests on, aims itself at an object or a person. Uh, and this is really uh, crucial to hear. I've said this a few times before, but Tim Keller probably says this the shortest, which is the most helpful. 
He says, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It's the thing or the person that your faith is in that saves you, not the strength of your faith. Here's an example. Um, A lot of kids, when they're little babies, are terrified to drive over bridges because they look down and they see the water, and they're like, we're going to fall into the water. Especially those bridges that have like uh, metal grates. You can actually look down below you and see it. And, and kids are like lifting their legs up. They're holding their breath. They're terrified. The only way to help that child move across that bridge without a meltdown every time is to get out of the car and to look at the bridge and to point out all the girders and all the concrete and all the arches and all the engineering. Because that kid can go over the bridge with the shakiest, weakest most agitated faith. They can go through over that bridge terrified. If the bridge is well built, will it carry them? Will it hold the weight of their car? Absolutely. But conversely, you could have the most cocky, confident, arrogant person ever just shooting down the interstate in a bridge that is poorly built. They can be like, oh, just see the other side. I'm jetting right across this bridge. And they fall into the ocean, or fall into the, the river. It is not the strength of your faith, either the weakness of it or the strength of it, that is important. It is the object of your faith. It's the bridge that carries the weight, not the way the kid feels about the bridge. So with Abraham here, what's important is where is his faith? Because here's maybe the biggest point of misunderstanding about faith. Faith isn't this warm, euphoric feeling, kind of akin to a narcotic effect. Where it's like, when, when faith, when God has given me faith, um, everything just feels like it's on autopilot. That's not the way the Bible describes what faith is. Nor is faith this mystical experience where it's like you're taken up to another level and it's just like you're just a spiritual zombie. Everything's awesome all the time. Faith is often described in the Bible as a kind of a weak, tiny thing. Remember, Jesus says the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. He's drawing attention to the size doesn't matter. It's where your faith is that matters. So follow with me. Where is Abraham's faith? Where does the passage say Abraham is looking, clinging to with white knuckles? What is he latched on to? What bridge is carrying the weight of his life, the weight of God's promise, the weight of his guilt? What bridge? He says in verse 18, Abraham believed just as it had been said to him. So Abraham's faith is in what God had said to him. Abraham's faith was in, was on God's word. God's promises, God's character, his faith is what Abraham was resting the weight of his life, the weight of his future and humanity's future on God's word, what God had said to him. Same for you. You feel comfortable resting the weight of your life on the promises that God has spoken to you? When Jesus says he came to save sinners, when Jesus says he came for the sick, not the healthy, the ungodly, not the righteous ones, do you hear that coming to your ears or does it float right past you? Where is your faith? Is it in God's word? Second, Abraham's faith was in God's promise to rescue the world. So it gets narrower, it gets more specific, right? Not just this vague faith in God, but it's getting narrow, it's getting more specific now. It's faith in what God said he would do. 
but now it's faith in a gospel promise. This promise. Abraham. The world sucks the way it looks right now. It is broken. It is spiraled into chaos. And it is ugly. And it is dark. And I'm going to make everything new through you and your family. And so Abraham's faith begins to latch on to even more specific words from God, more specific promises. The biggest, the biggest for you, for Abraham, is his faith was resting on God's character. Here's where it gets personal. Here's why God will not let you live by sight if you belong to him. He will purposefully, he will purposefully sometimes keep you in fog or keep you in the clouds because the only way you and I will learn to let go of demanding certainty, demanding that we have signs, that we just want more information, the only way God will release your grip on that so that you actually want him more than you want intel, so that you see that he is the one who makes your future safe, not your circumstances or all the little variables like a soundboard being lined up perfectly. The only way for him to wrench that out of your hands is to leave you in the fog. So God may be hearing your prayers and he might be answering them, but his answer might be no. I won't give you clarity. Or maybe he says, I will give you clarity, but I'm going to give you clarity about who I am and what I'm like. Because that's the prayer you should be praying. Because life doesn't come from getting the right information about your future, as if God was your horoscope man. Life, resurrection, comes from having the God of resurrection with you shoulder to shoulder through eternity. That's what he's offering here. Abraham trusted, believed in God's character. Verse 3, he says it. What did the scripture say? Abraham believed God, the person. Verse 21, he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what God promised to do. And he goes on from there and he says, um, this is why it was credited to him. Uh, He says uh, he was strengthened in his faith instead of being weakened in it. And so where should you be placing your faith? Do you have kind of this vague, generic, I believe in God? The Bible says the demons believe more than you do if you are at the point of just believing in God. It's a good place, good trajectory. But Jesus even says the demons believe more than that. The demons have seen God and bowed before him. So Abraham doesn't believe in a God. He's not like, I believe in God. I believe this God. I know him. I know his character. I know his power. I know his reputation. I know his fidelity. What he says happens every time. And so Abraham began to let more and more weight of his life lean back into this God's strong arms. And life began to, became, uh, began to come back to Abraham really quickly in observation. It's pretty important. And we hit our last point. I hope this is new for you. You have something better than just believing or having faith in God's character that he's going to come through for you. That when he says he makes sinners new, that he's telling you the truth, that he'll do it for you. That when he says he doesn't break the bruised or the wobbly little reed, when he says he doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick like a, a weak, suffering person, that that comes true for you. I think what, um, 
we get something more specific, and I think richer than that. It's faith in a God who brings life to dead stuff. You had to have seen this in the passage, right? It's everywhere. It jumps out at us. Uh, he talks, of, I mean, he says it explicitly at the end of uh, verse 17. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not previously into being. He talks about, uh, in other places, the God who brings back to life, the God who will return life to Sarah's dead womb, who will return life to Abraham's dead body. This is why Aaron read Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is probably the most famous place in the Bible where God is, is just throwing fuel on the fire, and he's like, you want, a big, you want a big show for me to prove to you that I am the God, not just the God of grace, not just the God of love, but specifically I am the God of resurrection life, which means resurrection life comes to dead people in dead places. So he says, Israel, you are dead. You're like bones in an old battlefield just lying bleached in the sun. And the prophet comes up and he says, and God says to the prophet, in a sense, begging Ezekiel to get it. And he says, hey, Ezekiel, can I make these bones come alive? And Ezekiel gets it. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, you can do whatever you want, in a sense. And he says, Ezekiel, get a load of this. Breathe. Prophesy to these bones to animate themselves, to take on flesh, for breath to come back in. And God breathes breath back into it. And he says, Israel had been complaining. We're dead. We're buried in our grave. And God said, I'll bring you up out of the grave. I'm not going to spend time on this. If you're interested, talk to me afterwards. But the Bible in the Old Testament always is comparing things to death and resurrection. Israel, when they're called out of Egypt... That was Israel's resurrection. That's how the Bible talks about the exodus, the deliverance. Israel was being resurrected out of death. The exile, when the Jews were sent to Babylon, was Israel's death. That's what Ezekiel was describing. When God called his people back out of exile, when the punishment was over, he said, I'm resurrecting you. I am bringing you back to life. These dead bones are about to breathe again. Look, the God, the God who is... The only God who is, is the God of resurrection life, which begs the question, are you dead? And if you're dead, spiritually, if you're dead to this God, if you're dead in your sins, you have one thing that's really awesome going for you. You happen to live in the world where the God who governs everything, the God who is king, is a resurrection God who shares this resurrection with dead people and dead things. And if you are alive and you continually have, a, have this parade of death that goes before you every time you think about yourself, death in my relationship, selfishness in my relationship, narcissism, repeat offenses and all this other stuff, and it's just death, 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 death. I got great news for you. The God who said to you, rise up, is the God who continues to go around and to touch stuff by his spirit. And dead stuff that was still on the ground comes back to life. Dead Bible studies come back to life. Dead relationships come back to life. Dead souls, dead emotions come back to life. 
And so it focuses our faith. Is your faith just in God generically or in the God who brings resurrection life? The last thing is, is, is brief, but perhaps the climax of the whole passage. Faith produces an outcome. Uh, faith isn't the end. It's the means, if that makes sense. Faith is a tool or an instrument that God has basically stamped his approval on and said, this thing called faith, this looking to Jesus, the resurrected king, or looking to God, uh, that faith is what I, uh, what I have kind of determined will bring you to me. And he specifically chose faith because faith isn't a work. Faith isn't meritorious. Here's something you might not have heard before. Faith has no power in and of itself. Remember what I said earlier, the cocky guy driving over the bridge? He has a ton of faith. Did it happen? Nope. There's been a lot of political candidacies where people are like, this is the guy. This is going to be the guy who changes everything, and it doesn't happen. Did their faith matter at Hill of Beans? No. Their confidence was purposeless. It is, faith has no power in itself, but the object of faith is what, is, is what has power. And so God has given you faith, in a sense, as the set of binoculars to look at Jesus, to look at God, to look at his promises so that you can see. So it's a weak thing. But God says it, point, it, it points you, it draws you to a strong thing. And he says it, he credits that. He credits you merely looking to Jesus as the powerful one, as righteousness. Get a load of that. You ever used a credit card? You know when you use a credit card, you're not paying them any money in that moment. That's why it's called credit. You swipe your card at Taos or you swipe your card at Target or something, no money is traded hands. All you did is run a piece of plastic with a magnet over a reader. And then 30 to 45 days later, money trades hands. But that merchant is giving you the benefit of the doubt. They're giving you credit for money you haven't paid them. And they're saying, hey, I'll wait on it. So they're counting nothing as payment. Isn't credit awesome? This is why Dave Ramsey's like, be careful. It gets worse when you don't pay your bill. That is, what, that is how God is describing faith that saves. It has no power in itself. But God credits it. He, he decides to accept it as righteous. And so that is what brings us into this royal, this righteous status that he shares with the whole world that we were talking about last week. I want to finish with this story so you can see how all of this case study stuff plays out in a real person's life. And this is a story of a man that a lot of you know. And I got this email last night from him. His name's David Linden. He's okay with me sharing this because he sent it out on a very large um, group of people that he's asking to pray. But his wife... Uh, has had Alzheimer's for the past couple of years, and um, she has gone downhill fast. And she's uh, at a place, well, you'll get a sense of this from this two paragraphs of his letter. David says, um, people ask me how Shirley is doing. If I tell you how my visits went on Saturday and Sunday, you would get the picture. I took along Missy, her dog. The dog searched her out and knew her. Dog went and got up on Shirley's lap. Uh, and it seems Shirley didn't recognize her dog. Now, if you know Shirley and Missy, we've been over to their house before. Shirley, the only thing she remembers was Missy. She loved that dog, or loves that dog. 
uh, but she didn't recognize Missy this time. Later, we sat together on a couch, and she petted the dog. Uh, and, she, and he says, now none of her sentences make sense. All of them are garbled, and they might even end up at a place where it's just numbers, which is like a, a symptom of advanced Alzheimer's. It's just jumbled random stuff. She sits by the window in a sullen and passive stillness. This is a woman who once was so active and capable that she could write her to-do list on a Saturday morning and be done with it by a Saturday afternoon. Here's why I wanted to share this with you. So on Thursday, I took her to the nursing home for the first time, finding it necessary to wash her bed sheets again. I gave her a bath, a shampoo, and off I went. She didn't seem to grasp at all what was happening. I often tell her that Jesus is coming and that he's going to fix everything. And I'm afraid that didn't make any sense to her anymore. What cheers me up is that the promises of God, all of them, are just as true for her as they were for Abraham. And like Job, she could say if she knew how to say it, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And Job says, after my skin has been destroyed, my flesh has been destroyed, yet I shall see God, whom I shall see with my own eyes. Did you catch how David's faith sees obstacles, sees death, doesn't sweep it under the rug? Did you see how his faith sees more than just the obstacles? Did you see how his faith is tuned into the God of resurrection who is coming back? Jesus who will stand on this smoldering wreck of a world and say, be new. And it will all be new and Jesus will get his way. And evil will not get his way. Death will not get its way. Because Jesus is king. This is what faith in the Bible looks like. It is not this weird emotional feeling, it is specific on this God and his promises to you. So will you look to him? Because even tonight, he is trying to persuade you. He says the word in the passage. Be persuaded. Open your eyes. This God is before you now pleading with you. Look to the one who has worked on your behalf. Look to the one who has measured up and gives that righteousness to people who have none of it themselves. Let's pray that we would be able to do this in his grace. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrected one. Your resurrection is our justification. Or your resurrection actually trickles down to us. It becomes our resurrection, our new life. And so we pray that you would come tonight, connect us to your resurrection, make us alive, make us more alive, and do it, to, 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 for your own pleasure, do it because it's what you most want to do with your world. Because you are indeed making all things new. And so we ask all of this in your name, for your glory and for your sake.